Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Hi, Patricia. Hello, Bernice. How are you? Oh, just fine, Patricia. Well, everyone, Patricia will be monitoring the chat room and summarizing your comments. Well, I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, my guest tonight is Gigi Bess Richardson, and the topic of discussion is My Free People of Color Classified as Melungeons. Gigi Bess is an author, historian, genealogist, poet, playwright, journalist, speaker, and antiquarian bookstore owner. She is a recipient of the Phyllis Wheatley Literary Award for her book, Thomas the Melungeon, His Locust Family of Free Persons of Color, Civil and Revolutionary War Patriots. Gigi is currently working on two historical novels entitled Nathan Bess, From Enslaved Body Servant to Confederate Courier, and Chapman's 40 Acres. So let me give a warm welcome to Gigi Bess Richardson to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Gigi. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I am glad to have you on the show. I always start off when I talk to people who have stories to tell us about what motivated you to begin your genealogical research. I've probably been interested in just knowing about family history for as long as I can remember. And 
I always was very inquisitive as a child. And um, I used to visit my grandmother in North Carolina during the summers. But what really, I retired in 2007 from the um, civil service, and that's when I really got, became motivated to find out more. And so one of the main motivators was my family in North Carolina. um, They call it the Jackson Family Reunion. It's actually my Aunt Eunice. Um, who was a Fuller and married a Jackson. So everyone was concentrating on Eunice, and I knew that my grandfather, um, she's my um, second great-grandfather, so I knew my grandfather was raised by her. And so I heard different family stories, one that her sister died and she raised Daniel, And then the more I started asking questions, I found out it was actually her brother's wife, um, my second great-grandmother, who died. And so she raised her nephew. And so I found Mm -hmm. other things. You know, they have these family histories about she raised him since birth. But when I started my research, I found out different things. So that was what really had me motivated. I wanted to know who was this great-grandfather that nobody, you know, knew about because everybody was honoring his sister. So that really got me going. Yes, yes. And I could see something like that happening. You're wondering, well, you know, it's all about the sister. What about about him? Very interesting. Well, I, I want to tell you something. I have, I've posted on many sites the title of this show and has received messages from people saying, what is a Melungeon? So tell us, who are the people classified as Melungeon? We need, we need a little education now. <laughs> okay. Most of the people who are considered as Melungeon were free people of color who most of them can trace their ancestry back to those African slaves who came into the um, colonial period in 1619. They actually arrived before the Mayflower. And so, but they were also um, Native American, European. So um, a lot of people call them triracial. I call them triethnic because I only believe in one race. And so they had these different ethnicities, but they were free people of color. And that's typically how people deny, you know, either say, oh, well, we were Portuguese or we were Spanish. So there was a lot of controversy about, and still is, about who the Melungeons are and were. But now that DNA has come forth, then we see in our DNA that we are, and I'm not a Melungeon, I'm a descendant of a Melungeon. So it's a it's a category that's not really used anymore because, I mean, some people still use it, but technically once the enslaved people were free, they did not use that term. And that term was a pejorative term, Um a lot of people did not like it who were classified as Melungeon because 
they were treated differently. So uh, some of them didn't want to be called that. Well, who called them that? Well, what it was was a lot of them were in North Carolina, and then some went to South Carolina and some to Tennessee. And so when they were living in these um, separate, I guess, almost like villages, they lived together, they worked together, um, but when they were in Tennessee, people noticed these individuals with blue eyes and um, dark hair and wanted to know, well, what are their origins? So many of them said they were Portuguese. And so Mm -hmm. um, that's why there was a lot of confusion. Even some people who denied didn't really want to confess to any African ancestry because that was kind of taboo. You'll find court records and actually – documents where they were trying, some of them were trying to prove their Native American um, heritage. And so they would go to court and try to prove their heritage, but they would um, have a lot of difficulty because um, they were said to have had some African ancestry. And so they didn't want to admit that they had African ancestry, is that what you're saying? Yes, that was that was because of the times. I mean, mm-hmm. um, there was so much discrimination, you know, back then it's still some today, but there um, the people would actually go to court and testify against them to say there were unfair laws like any man who was married to either a woman of African descent or Native American descent, had to pay a discriminatory tax. So what would happen is the neighbors, when you look at the Melungeon, um, a lot of times you couldn't tell um, what ethnic background they were from. So many of them um, did not deliberately pass but could have. So when the neighbors knew their mother or grandmother or great-grandmother. They would go and and tell the courts about them, and they would be fined um, for having these women of color in their house and actually have to pay fines, mostly in tobacco, because that was the currency of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not all free people of color uh, would necessarily be called Melungeon. You're, You're specifically right. talking about a certain group of people being yes. called Melungeon. Okay, yes. so we Matter got that fact, clear. Yeah, so so the the Melungeons were free people of color, but other free people of color were not Melungeons. There were people mm-hmm. who were freed <clears throat> a lot of times like in the middle 1700s or later 1700s, who had been um, African enslaved and they were freed. That did not make them Melungeon. Melungeon were more 
of a group that lived together, worked together, and married um, a, a diverse group of people. In fact, some of the Melungeons in Virginia um, had um, Anglo wives, and they were told, well, you can be free, but you can't be free here in Virginia. So many of my ancestors left Virginia and ended up in, in North Carolina. Okay. Okay, so how far back can you actually trace your ancestors? Well, um, I've done my DNA, so I have varied um, ethnicity like many people. And so my um, British ancestor, uh, Nathaniel Tilden, I can trace him back to his birth date in 1583, and he was in Massachusetts as um, early as um, 1628, and he's considered one of the men of Kent. There was a founding. They were in Situate, which is Plymouth, Massachusetts, very early. So um, there's a lot of documentation about his age, so 1583, I always say, because I proved him in the in, in two organizations, um, Colonial Dames of America and the um, also the Colonial Dames of the 17th century. Wow. So tell me, how did you prove that? I mean, to find a uh, connection with somebody through your DNA and to be able to trace your ancestral roots all the way back to 1586 had to be a monumental feat. So tell us, how did you do that? Well, because I'm a genealogist, I um, <laughs> <laughs> I had when you join any of the lineage societies, you start... Um, some of them are just ex starting to accept DNA, like Daughters of the American Revolution. If you have two documents, which are um, primary documents, then like a birth certificate, a will, then you can use that third document as DNA, um, proving to, I guess, another person who has already been approved. I did mine all through documents. And so going to looking at land deeds and wills and um, going to national archives and going to local archives, to deed offices, to courthouses, um, just finding those various documents. And I'm blessed in a way because some of my ancestors had been proven by someone else, so books were written about them or um, blogs, different things that I was able to find their information. But you have to right. prove them to you, you know, even though they've been proven right. That's right. as, yes, mm -hmm. as a uh, another daughter of the American Revolution might have proved your ancestor. I had a cousin who proved mine, but then I had to go back and show his connection to me. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, how much 
of your ancestral journey was influenced by oral history? Well, I guess, I don't know, I, I guess I would say about 20 to 30% because my grandmother, I I um I guess give the honor to my grandmother, who's my uh, paternal grandmother, my mother, and my um, great aunt, because they were the ones who gave me some of that oral history. And then, you know, they would mention different things, and then I'd ask for more information. Well, what about this person, and where did they live, and how many children did they have? I had a cousin who just passed away at 95. He was a male cousin, and he had a mind that was sharp. The, you know, when he passed away, as I guess it had been when he was younger. And so he helped me um, get this information um, by telling me, like my, my great-grandmother had a brother named Toby. I didn't know that. But here is this 95-year-old cousin telling me, you know, yeah, well, your great-grandmother had a brother named Toby, and I was able to find Toby on the census and then find his death certificate and then find, you know, more information about him. And it's not always oh, easy. Sometimes it. <laughs> sometimes it takes you, like my great-grandmother, I had heard that she was, that she died in Camden, New Jersey, and that she was buried in North Carolina um, by my grandmother, her daughter. She had other children. And... I tried and tried to find records, and I sent information to New Jersey and couldn't find anything. So Mm -hmm. what I ended up doing is, and you say about oral history, I would want to say that her story was the one that I was able to prove more by oral history than anything because I talked to a cousin my grandmother's sister's son, and he said, oh, I remember um, when she died. He said, because I went to the funeral, and it was in Jersey. And um, then someone else, another cousin, told me, she said, oh, I finally found a record from her church that said she was sick. I think two years later, she found another record that they had sent to the family saying they're sorry, you know, Mother Fuller had passed. So when I start putting these together, I realize she passed away from between the middle of January and the end of January, I think 1954. So I mm-hmm. got in touch with New Jersey again, and I said, well, if she died, then where would I get the records? They said Trenton. So I sent away to Trenton, and I got her death certificate. And it all began with oral history. Yes, yes, yes. And so many people are finding that if they can listen to those clues and then start tapping into the resources to verify that that oral history can set you off in the right direction. Yes. Let's go back for a moment to uh, Melungeons. And I'd like you, first of all, to give us an idea of the geographic locations 
of your ancestors, and then give us an idea of the surnames of individuals that may fit into the category you describe as Melungeon or free people of color. And really, I want you to just name the, just give us the surnames because I'm sure we have a lot of people wondering, well, what people might fall under that category with those surnames? Okay. In my book, I actually have um, a list, and I'm going to read some of them. Mostly the ones, and, and most of these are Virginia and North Carolina. And so just to give you an example, the Andersons, um, seven people in Virginia, 52 in North Carolina. The Archers, nine in Virginia, 51. And this was all, they were all on the 1810 census. So you have to realize how far back that was and that they were free. And so the artists, um, the Bass, a lot of people hear about the Bass, the Chavis and Chavers, and most of these were those people who were descendant from the, um, they call them the 20 and odd that came into, um, uh, in um, it was actually into Virginia in 1619. The Cousins. Cuffy, Cumbo, Day, Fuller, Goins, the Hammonds, um, the Lockleers, the Lucas Locus, the Nickens, the Oxidines, the Rebels, um, Richardsons, and Roberts. And that's just to name some of them. And different people um, agree or disagree who were actually Melungeon. But the people on this list um, are actually Melungeon, and my husband's a Richardson. So it's really in the Lucas Locus is the line, but I'm also um, related to the Archers, the Roberts. Because so many of these families um, stayed together to protect themselves, then they ended up continuing to marry inside of these families. So they were very close-knit families. They even went to Indiana, and they went as a group. So um, usually when they migrated, they migrated together. Right, they they sure did. Because I I noticed you put um, Vigo uh, County, Indiana, in your book for the the archers. Yes. uh, And the artists, that's right, right. So yes. it's it's really interesting just to uh, hear those surnames, and then for those who tested their DNA, uh, especially with uh, ancestry, they can go in and perhaps put in those surnames and see if they have individuals matching them with those surnames in their trees. Now, yes. when you mention North Carolina, are there specific areas, uh, towns in North Carolina where you will find the clustering of free people of color with some of the surnames you've mentioned? Yes, a lot of them are in Robeson. I pronounce it Robeson. The people from North Carolina call it Robeson, but it's spelled Mm -hmm. R-O-B-E-S-O-N. So Mm -hmm. when I find my... um, ancestors I find them living in that area and so and a lot of 
the men in that area, because it's easier to track the men, of course, were um, military, Revolutionary War, 1812, Civil War. So when you look at their pension records, you'll find that at some point in time they were living in either Robeson County or um, in the Fayetteville area, and anybody who's ever heard of the Lumbee Indians, the Lumbee Indians also live in that area. So then mm-hmm. there's different places in Tennessee, like I said, that they moved to, and um, some still live in Virginia. I met a gentleman not long ago. I was at a um, one of the family history it wasn't the the family history center from the um the one from utah it was another one and i stopped in there and i met a gentleman who was descendant of the 20 and odd and so usually those people you know the people who are descendant from those um Africans who came in very early and what a lot of people don't know is they weren't considered enslaved because America had not started the chattel slavery then when they came here they were more like indentured servants and so when they finished their indentureship they received land and was able to pass that down to their descendants. Okay. Well, now we have a question coming out of the chat room, and I don't know if you can address this, but they wanted to know, is it true that there's some specific medical conditions of individuals that are described as melungeons? I've heard that, but I have not done a lot of research myself on that um, because, you know, when you get into the blogs and things, you'll hear somebody say, oh, well, this is a condition of the Melungeons. Um, I cannot claim to be an expert on on um, the medical conditions that people, I look at my family and I, I look at my, because as, as we do this research, then you get death certificates. So I found it interesting that my great-grandfather, who was descendant of Melungeon, um, had a, um, died from a kidney ailment. And then my grandmother um, and then his son died from a, they died from cancer. But they didn't die from cancer until they were in their 80s. So on my grandfather's side, they tended to have heart attacks. Um, But on my grandmother's side, it tended to be cancer. So I don't know. um, In fact, Thomas died of nephritis. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's a liver or kidney or something like that. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, kidney. And so I have noticed that many of the people who are descended from those Native Americans, I see the that they have 
a lot of them die from nephritis. Now, another thing I've noticed, and this is just with my family, is that um, a lot of the women, like my great-grandmother, Thomas's wife, um, died in childbirth. She was, he married her in 1870, and she had passed away by 1874 when Daniel was born. And so um, she died of preeclampsia. And then um, Daniel had a daughter, and she died of preeclampsia. Um, medical um, advances got much better because my daughter had it, and then my granddaughter had it. So I do think there are things that are passed down through the generations. The, we're just blessed that, you know, by the time my daughter and my granddaughter, there were excellent hospitals, and those children were born at two pounds and now are, you know, are healthy children. Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but I I need you to do one thing because we have some people who are still saying they they missed the original discussion where you began the, telling us what would make somebody uh, a Melungeon. And so could you just go back and just review that for just a short period of time, and then we're going to take a quick break. Okay. So who um, are the people classified as Melungeons? The people classified as Melungeons were free people of color who were free, and most of them had never, the majority, have never been enslaved. They were um, people who arrived in the colonies very early, and they were tri-ethnic um, and then if you add Portuguese in there, so which some people think they were all Portuguese, but I don't believe so. Um, some of the people test will get Iberian. Um, a lot of us, when we test, I had Native American. Um, and so those people were a group of people who lived together, um, stayed in the same areas. They were in North Carolina, like I said, a lot of them in Robeson County, North Carolina. Then many of them moved to Tennessee because of harassment and mistreatment. Um, some moved to South Carolina. But they were a people who were very proud people who were very industrious. They always have their um, Anglo counterparts write up information when they're trying to move, like when they moved to Vigo, Indiana, uh, Lick Creek, Indiana, they had to. So they are a people um, who were basically always free and traveled in the same circles and married within each other, you know, with, with those family, the, the names that I read out they um, married, and when you'll see the records, a gentleman wrote a book in Indiana, and he lists like the Hammonds and the Roberts and the Locusts and um, all of the Archers. They all ended up in Indiana, but I mean, some of them ended up staying in North Carolina, so it wasn't the whole family, but it was some of them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you talk about the classification, is there something in writing some documents that you would actually 
see the word melungeon back in colonial well, times? Well, a lot of people write about them, and there's been um, some kind of – that term comes up in several different writings. Some people say melenge from Africa. Some people say um, there's a word pretty similar um, from Portugal. So they're, where they actually got their original um, classification or someone calling them by that name, there's even disputes with that. Where did that first come from? So many scholars and a lot of people, you know, write about them because they're such a mystery and different people say that their their name is derived from, you know, African people who traveled together. Some people, as I say, say it's a Portuguese word. So, um, but yes, they were designated and people did call them that um, back in uh, colonial times. Back in colonial times. Although mm-hmm. you have the contemporary people also using the term uh, melungeon. Melungeon, yes. It doesn't yes. necessarily mean that we're talking about the same people. Well, what happens is a lot of times because we, as people of African descent, um, as we know that from 1619 there was intermarriage between different ethnicities. So I've heard people say, well, I have these different ethnicities, so I'm a Lungeon. But not really. I mean, you can be a descendant of a Lungeon, but I don't think a person classified today could call themselves a Lungeon. There's, there's still people in Tennessee that do, um, but to me, um, because you have mixed heritage does not make you Lungeon. It's Right. Like I said, it it started at a particular time. It kind of ended at a particular time um, because once they were um, after 1865, those people who were um, considered emancipated, then the sad thing about it is the Melungeon people and other free people of color ended up being perceived as if they had never had a separate status. So And did they, they lost... have a separate status? Yes, they did. Um, in North okay. Carolina, they were allowed to have their land, and typically nobody bothered them. They were able to live their lives. Of course, they were forced out of Virginia, and some of them started feeling very, um, I guess, anxious in North Carolina um, right before and right after the Nat Turner Rebellion, and some of them were even attacked. And so we're going to talk about that, about how they were mistreated and, and why they started leaving North Carolina. Right. Okay, and and just for clarification for everyone, we're talking about free people of color. Yes. which are not yes. necessarily people that are calling themselves Melungeon. We're talking free right. people of color. Okay, yes. so we're going to take a quick break and come right back. 
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Gigi Beth Richardson, and she has been uh, working with us on trying to understand this term, melungeon. And also, we will be moving from the term melungeon to speaking more about the free people of color and the records that she has reviewed on free people of color, specifically in North Carolina and other areas. Now, Gigi, when we went on break, the chat room started buzzing. Tons of questions <laughs> here. So, okay. So, the the question that uh, appears to need answering is there a record set that you know of where you have actually seen people classified as melungeons um yes there's um there's several um terms a lot of times there's um information in when I talk about the Lumbee Indians, um, they had several names. The, the Lumbee Indians in North Carolina, also in Robeson County, um, claim their heritage back to the lost colony. So one of the things that you realize is when you start talking about the Melungeons and because there was a lot of Native American mixture, then you find that they were called different names. So when the Lumbee were called Melungeon, at first they accepted that um, that name, and then it started being pejorative, pejorative. So then they were called the Robeson County Indians, um, and then they were um, had several other names that they were called. So in records, yes, there is documentation. But the what happened to them is they finally, 
and they have just been recognized by they fought for their recognition for years and they've finally been recognized as a tribe. And what happened and 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 kind of what has happened with the Melungeon is they were or Native Americans too, people who who were actually descendant of Native Americans, they were called mulatto. Not and people used to think that mulatto was just um a Afri- person of African descent and a person of European descent, but there's actually um, a, um, in my book, I'm reading from, is it okay to read from page 103 in my Go book? Go ahead on. That, mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. So in here I have the term mulatto was a catch-all phrase used for people who were of diverse ancestry. These individuals could have been Anglo-African, Indian-African, Indian-Anglo, or any other combination of different ethnicities. Anyone considered non-quote-unquote non-white during this time um, could have their lands taken away from them and lose many of their privileges. If Native Americans lived outside of the reservation, it was common not to list them as Native Americans on the census. So here's an interview that I found. The following interview held by the North Carolina Senate explains the consensus of the term mulatto as it relates to the Lucas Locus, Jones, Archer, Artis, and Roberts families of Robeson County, to name just a few of those free persons of color surnames. So in 1871, the North Carolina Joint Senate and House Committee interviewed Robeson County Judge Giles Leach about the free persons of color residing in his county. So the Senate said half of the colored population, they're asking a question. Leach said, yes, sir, half of the colored population of Robeson County were never slaves at all. The Senate then says, what are they? Are they Negroes? Lich, well, sir, I desire to tell you the truth, excuse me, as near as I can, but I do not know what they are. I think they are a mixture of Spanish, Portuguese, and Indian. The Senate, you think they are mixed Negroes and Indians? Lich, I do not think that that in that class of population, there is much Negro blood at all. Of that half of the colored population that I have attempted to describe, all have always been free. They are called mulattoes. That is the name they are known by as contradistinguished from Negroes. I think they are of Indian origin. Then it says, Senate, I understand you to say that these seven to 800 persons that you designate as mulattoes are not Negroes, but are a mixture of Portuguese and Spanish, white blood and Indian blood. You think they are not generally Negroes? Leech. I do not think the Negro blood predominates Senate, 
the word mulatto means a cross between the white and the Negro. Leech, yes, sir. Senate, you do not mean the word to be understood in that sense when applied to these people. Leech, I really do not know how to describe these people. So <laughs> there it goes. You know, that's why it's been so much controversy about the um, Melungeons on, and, and then, you know, being termed as mulatto because people want to put people in categories and pegs. And um, those Native American who married Anglo were still considered Native American. But if the Plecker and, and those people who fought against their claiming their Native American status would say if they have one drop of African, then they are no longer Native American. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and when you looked at, at documents, I mean, obviously when you look at the census, you see mulatto. Yes. But, and that's somebody doing really an eyeball check because, I mean, how do they know what, what you're mixed up other than what they yes. think they see? But right. then again, it sounds like you're interchanging Melungeon with Mulatto. At times. Now, the thing is, you can be Melungeon, but at a certain point when they started documenting people on the census, I have a great-grandfather, Chapin Bess, who I'm going to write about. He was actually, he was not Melungeon, um, he was born in 1869, and he was actually, quote, unquote, what they called mulatto, being a mixture of a European and an African. But those people classified as Melungeon, who they also put on the census as mulatto, um, it was kind of a different um, term. But they would not, some of them were, could have been 80% Native American, but they would not call them Native American. They would call them mulatto. Mm -hmm. And then I have a a comment coming out of the chat from uh, Shannon who said that many of the free people of color descendants in Halifax County, North Carolina, self-identify as part Native American and the members of the Hawa Saponi tribe. But yes. I see that many of them have a genetic admixture that is a mirror image of that of the self-described Melungeons. Yes, and, and that is true. I didn't mention Halifax County, but my mother, I have Melungeon on both sides of my family. And so on my mother's side, it's the Bunches and um, the Newsoms, but the Bunches come out of Halifax County. My husband is a Richardson. The Richardsons have a strong line out of Halifax County. So, yes, there are other counties in North Carolina where um, the people were classified as Melungeon or Native American, and the Halawasaponi were um, the bunches and some of the other families on the um, – on my side in Robeson County, they were Catawba Cherokee. So mm-hmm. when you do your DNA, it just says you're Native American or part Native American. My, my mother 
when she used to tell me when I was younger that she was part Native American, I said, well, what tribe? She said Blackfoot. And that's a misnomer. A lot of African, people of African descent thought it was Blackfoot, but Blackfoot were not even in eastern North Carolina. They were in in the Midwest. And so as we, I've done the paperwork, now I found out that she's probably a, de- a descendant of the Halawasaponi. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's move on and to just finding <clears throat> documentation of free people of color. And, and tell us about uh, what kind of documents did you find? And also, I'm going to ask you a two-part question. What kind of challenges mm-hmm. did free p- people of color experience uh, what you were able to find in your research, what kind of challenges that they experienced being free people of color? Okay, well, one of the things about finding a documentation, it all started with me with, and, and you know, a lot of times people want to jump from your mother to your fifth-grade grandfather. You have to do it systematically. So after I started this research where I was looking for my great-grandfather, I went to the National Archives and pulled his pension record. He entered into the Civil War as a Union soldier in um, 1865. So I pulled his records. Now, one thing about a pension, there's some of the most awesome records you can find because in this record, it took him years to get his pension, and they asked him so many questions. And so one of the questions they asked him, if you were enslaved, who was your master? He said, I was freeborn. Then I saw, found him on the census with his mother in 1860 and his sister Eunice, the one who raised my grandfather. Then I found on another census that um, they're both in the house in the 1850s. So if you find your relative who um, is of African descent and you see them on the 1850-1860 census, then you know they were free because if they were enslaved, they would have only been listed by an age, um, complexion, um, whether they were, um, some said mulatto, some didn't say it. And then you'll see your ancestors changing back and forth. I read a lot of books um, that discuss the Melungeons, and there are several out there, um, and those books actually tracked certain families. So that's how I was able to find out about my ancestors who went to Indiana. And um, one of the, the things that was really hard for them with the challenges when they moved to Indiana, one of my great-grandfather's name is um, Ishmael Roberts, and Ishmael Roberts married Sylvia Archer. And they said that Sylvia was full-blood Cherokee, but he was Melungeon. So he received You mean you actually six, saw that on a document? On the documents, when they discussed um, 
it's kind of like you'll there's books um where different people wrote about those different um ancestors there's not a particular like court document that I found that said he was Melungeon. I found court documents that said he was a free man of color. Now, when he got his 640 acres of land, he gave, he traded, they actually give you the land in Tennessee because North Carolina didn't have any land, even though he did his service there. So he traded and sold and bartered and sent his sons to Indiana. Well, what happened is when they first went to Indiana, they went with the Quakers. Some of them did. And so they were living side by side with the Quakers. But as it got closer, now they went out there in 1820 and 1830. As it got closer to the Civil War, then they were being harassed. And um, eventually they all left that area. Some of them returned to North Carolina but they had to carry free papers with them. They had to keep from trying to be kidnapped. So um, there's one, in my book also there's a one of my cousins is a you know the locust and you'll find the locust spelled Lucas L U C A S um, L O C U S and L O C U S T. So this particular document. Um, it was in a newspaper. One of Thomas's cousins, Valentine Locus, who served in the Revolutionary War, actually did experience the tragedy of having his children kidnapped. An article was printed in the Raleigh Register about the kidnapping. This is October the 6th, 1801, and it's written in Old English. So um, it says, Free Negro Stealers on the 29th, instant about midnight four men came to the house of valentine locust an aged free negro who resides on leak creek in wake county and calling at the door to gain admittance as soon as the door was open two of them entered with clubs and instantaneously knocked down the old man and his wife and beat them to such a degree as scarcely to leave life. And whilst they were in that situation, the robbers carried off two of their children, a boy named Absalom, aged about 12 years, of a yellowish complexion, who is just able to read and write, a girl named Polly, aged about five years, of a complexion more yellow than her brother, the father of the children is a respectable and industrious old man who has hitherto made ample provisions for himself and family, and it is hoped from the particular circumstances of his case arising from his incapacity to bear witness except against his own color, added to his distressed situation. He must be placed in after the loss of his two children will awaken the feelings of the humane and that they will contribute everything in their power. They may tend to the detecting and punishing such vile offenders. It is supposed 
the perpetrators of this offense will endeavor to convey their prey to the state of Georgia in the character of slaves for the purpose of traffic. Wake County, North Carolina, September 30th, 1801. The printers of the United States who are desirous of detecting the offenders will give this a place in their papers. So wow. that was one of the reasons why they yeah, why they stayed together because you can imagine this. Here's somebody breaking in your house, um, and the after they started the transatlantic slave trade, then it was worse for these free people of color because they were seeking <clears throat> they were seeking them out and kidnapping them and taking them down to further south, Louisiana, Georgia, um, but they had it pretty decent in North Carolina to a certain extent. And what people mm-hmm. have to realize, though we say, quote, unquote, free people of color, they were indentured from the child, the time they were born if their mothers weren't married. And one of my ancestors in my book, it mentions where he's um, actually indentured at three years old. And they said to teach him to be a farmer. Three years old, it was another way of getting free labor from people and, who weren't enslaved. Yes. And, Gigi, it, since you mentioned a three-year-old being indentured, what document did you find that on? I actually found that in the um, records of Nash County. Nash County um, Courthouse has records where they list indentureships. <clears throat> Every county is not um, good like that. It, they actually had the court documents. Even when I go back to my um, ninth great-grandmother, who was a British servant who started that Lucas Locust clan, and um, the they weren't married, but John Kikatan, they had a child together, and I actually have those court documents that um, in Charles City County that says that she was supposed to get 30 lashes for having this child out of wedlock and, and not so much that she had the child with a man of African descent. It was just that she had the child out of wedlock. So there are documents that you can read and find out about your family that actually exists. That certainly are. So I want you to now just tell us a little bit more about Thomas, your your ancestor, and what did you find out about Thomas? Okay, one, one good thing. Um, my grandmother did... Um, when she filled out my great-grandfather Daniel's um, death certificate, her father, she knew that his father was Thomas. And But she has unknown for his mother. And I'm like, well, that was, how could she not know who her grandmother was? So when I went to the National Archives and I put, pulled Thomas' pension record, he mentions in his pension record because they ask, have you ever been married before? 
who's your current wife, he states on there that his first wife was Minerva Dawson. When I saw that, it brought tears to my eyes because here's a lady whose nobody has called her name in years. She was like lost, like so many of the women are lost because nobody knew their name. So he says in this pension record, he names all of his nine children. Um, I found out that he had a second marriage after my grandmother died. And when she died, she was just a young woman herself. She was only 19 when she died, and she had had three children, and she died at the birth of Daniel, which was her third child. So the other thing in his documentation, he says where he lived. He said he's always been in Lenore County. Um, He names his nine children. He talks about, they talk about his health and how he's losing his teeth and he's not able to walk. But the exciting thing I did is I actually went to where he served his time. Now, he never was in combat because he didn't come in till late, but he enlisted in um, L Company, 14th Regiment L Company, um, heavy artillery. So he went in in New Bern, and they took him to Macon. Um, it was actually um, on Atlantic Beach, but it was um, Fort Macon. But I actually went there and walked those grounds and read about what it was like for those men who were back in the military in that time. And how they were mistreated. I found a record that said that Thomas was sitting on a curb in Richmond and um, the guard asked him to move. And he says, I have a toothache. I'm getting ready to go. And the guy hit him with the butt of his rifle. And he suffered from that for a long time. He hit him more than once. So um, I found those things about him. And then I oral history, I talked to a lady, I tracked him down because his son had his own church and um, I tracked the son down, Um, not my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather Daniel was a farmer, but Thomas, this is the amazing thing, Thomas had six sons, three of those sons he put through college. Now here's a man who had only been a farmer, who was uneducated. Um, one of my one of my um, uncles graduated from Lincoln University in 1898. His name was Lemuel Fuller. He became a minister, started a school at the church he was at for, and it was only three teachers, and they had 300 children. Then his another one of his sons, Peter Garfield Fuller, became a county agricultural agent. Now, Lemuel graduated from Lincoln University in 1898, and in 1901 he had an advanced degree um, as a, in, in theology. And I traced that, you know, got in touch with um, Lincoln University, and they verified everything, and 
I found records online from the Presbyterian Church. So there's just all well, what, different yes. places. Right. But what you have pointed out is definitely the value of the information that you can find in a Civil War pension record. Uh, yes. Because that pension re- record simply, I mean, it just gave you a wonderful roadmap to follow just by reading the, that primary document with him stating what happened in his life. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand because you, you, in your bio, you mentioned that you're, uh, you joined several lineage societies. So please tell us, I mean, why you joined these societies. And specifically reference your your most recent lineage society, the Sons and Daughters of the U.S. Middle Passages. Um, for so long, when I first um, started my work um, on these different societies, Thomas's um, I've proved him through the um, Daughters of the Union Veterans of the Civil War. So what happened is while I was doing this work, then I had a friend who said, well, why don't you go for DAR? That's the next one. Well, with my DAR, it's a European ancestor. I'm a best. His name is Benjamin Best, Um, my fifth great grandfather. And my um, third great grandfather, um, let me see, Chapin, second great grandfather was European and he fought in the um on the Confederate side. So anyway, as I started doing this, the reason why I did it is because it actually proves my ancestors by me submitting. You know, you start with your birth certificate. If you're married, your husband's birth certificate, your marriage license, you do the same thing with your mother and father and you keep going back and you have these records, whether it's census records. But when I got the opportunity most recently um, to join the sons and daughters of the U.S. Middle Passage, we call our ancestors forced heroes because that was kind of a war in itself where they were brought here to this country against their will and to be able to honor them so many people don't honor them and this you know people say you know and and it's the truth that America was built on the back of my ancestors free labor so i have those free people of color i have european i have native american um and and i have some that were enslaved So all of these ancestors mean so much to me because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here. So honoring honoring them is just awesome. Right. It certainly is awesome. And when you have this documentation to prove that, to prove this, and this documentation allows you to get into these various lineage societies, I, I, I would certainly say go for it. And certainly those that are forced heroes, as you call them, uh, the enslaved, 
uh, and to even consider, for that matter, individuals to join the sons and daughters of the U.S. Metal Passage. You have a lot to be proud of simply because it's upon their shoulders that you stand. And so I'm just really happy to hear that you, you mentioned this group. Now, we have a comment coming from one of the chatters, and this is Shannon, and he's saying one of his cousins, uh, Jochebeb Christmas, married a Richard C. Locus. And yes. Others and have, <laughs> Go ahead. I was just saying others are pointing out that they, some of those surnames that you called out, they also have ancestral connections with those those surnames. Yes, and it's so funny because, oh, I'm sorry, I've done my DNA, and there's a Christmas who matches me on DNA. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, (laughs) there's a a question, another question. Do you recommend Hennon and Henshaw's works? Um, Yeah, Uh, Paul, yes, Mm -hmm. yes, Heineck. Paul Heineck, yes, I do. I really do, because um, if it wasn't for him and his research, there's a lot of things I wouldn't find. Now, there's Lucas Locus who reached out to me and let me know, you know, about this ancestry, and when I found his work, and we've done DNA, so we know that we're related, but the irony is when you do your DNA, like there's a Locus cousin who was very close to me, and I thought it was through the Lucas Locus line, but they're actually related through the bunch line with my mother as a second cousin and a sixth cousin through the Lucas Locus line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's, that's well, one some thing of the things I you'll find. Say, right. One of the things that I found very interesting in your book as I read it I turned around and did probably what a lot of people have done, and that's look in their DNA to find out if they can find a particular relationship. And certainly I have found just about every single name you've mentioned in your book connected to me. So uh, it is, oh, yes, we're definitely related here. Uh, So uh, there's a question about Carter G. Woodson, and I'm not Mm -hmm. exactly sure, Karen, what you want. She she states that he has documented free people, she thinks. Do you know anything about that? Well, you know, um, Carter G. Woodson, of course, the miseducation of the Negro, but we also have um, a lot of the African-American historians. In the back of my book, um, I... My book is written like a novel, so it's very easy to understand, but it's also factual. So in the back of my book, in my um, sources, I do mention um, several of those um, people who wrote about the free people of color. Um, Tim Hashaw, Paul Heineck, um, there is a... Um, of Robbins, Corey Robbins, he's the one that did most of that research, African heritage in Orange County, um, Indiana. So a lot of those people left Orange County, Indiana. And so, yes, I've used um, Paul Heinig's work. It, what the distressing thing for me, though, 
is that when you get to a certain, he goes back like from 1665, um, which is actually when that Lucas Locust line started. Well, my great-grandmother was born in 1646, and um, my great-grandfather in 1636. So those that's why I wanted to note that by her being a British servant, then she was, of course, not enslaved. So the, the way that the laws went back in early Virginia was if you are descendant from a free woman of color or a free European woman, as long as your great-grandmother was free or your mother was free, the family kept records of that so that when they went to court and people tried to tell them, well, how do we know you're free? Then And also when they went to do their Native American lineage and went to the Dawes Rolls, those people said, well, who's your grandmother? Who's your great-grandmother? So some people in the family, the locusts, are on the um, Cherokee Rolls. So some can be documented and some sisters and brothers, you know, they'll document some and not document the others because the other ones didn't know their history. Mhm, mhm. Well, this has been a very interesting uh, conversation tonight. And for those individuals who want to to truly try to understand just what what this title Melungeon means and classification, I mean, we want to see some some records. We want to see the the term actually used in in historical documents just to make sense out of why people have been classified or called this a where are they classified. And certainly hearing about free people of color and the documents that you were able to find is something of great value to to individuals so that you may say you hit a roadblock when you're trying to find your enslaved ancestors, but you may not hit a roadblock, as you have indicated, when finding your free people of color. Well, do you have any parting words for us tonight, Gigi? Well, for those people who want to discuss more about the Melungeons, and I actually have a blog, and so I want to give them the, the blog address. It's Carries C A R R I E S dash Ken K I N dot blogspot dot com, and so they can um, go to that and um, just actually discuss anything, ask any questions, and I'll do the best I can um, for finding this information um, that can help them. And also, I have a Facebook page at Best Books Rich Treasures, um, and you can go to that page, order books, <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I'm I love this. Um, so any opportunity I have to discuss it, um, any opportunity I have to check with different people for Jed Match numbers, um, we can do that too. So. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight and sharing sharing your research and just being willing to answer all of those questions. 
And <laughs> for all of you, I just want to just say, please remember your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. And also watch for the Black ProGen Live with host Nika Soul Smith. Also check out my services at BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. And everyone, I look forward to you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Hauer in the chat room. Thank you so much, Patricia. Good night, everyone. Good night, Gigi. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.